Hello, and welcome to Black Magic Treehouse, the podcast and physical location out here in the middle of these scary woods in which we revisit and review the spooky media of the past that made us feel like we had toys in the attic. Specifically dolls. Did you hear that cat meow coming through the mic? No, but that would have been perfectly timed. (laughs) It would have been. We have a population of uh, feral cats living outside of our cottage. Um, Anyway, my name is Eric. And my lovely assistant is... Jose. Joining me as always. How are you doing, Jose? I am doing pretty well, Eric. Um, I gotta say, though, you're, you're... you're tie- Is Toys in the Attic the name of a V.C. Andrews novel? I doubt that's what you have for today, but is, is there a V.C. Andrews novel called? No, Flowers in the Attic. Wow. It's... Flowers yeah, in the Attic. Yeah, we're off yeah. to a good start. I should have known that. I feel like there she does have a book that has toys in the title, though. Uh, I will stick with that. I'm sticking to my guns on it that one. surprise me. And it's some weird, freaky sex thing about kids, I'm sure. Yeah, naturally. Uh, boy. Have you ever heard the phrase toys in the attic? Um, does it have to do with like a couple eggs short of a full dozen or things like that? (laughs) Yeah. It's basically another version of like bats in the belfry. Uh, Okay. Yeah. I thought so. So does that uh, mean the only time I've ever heard it is from Pink Floyd's The Wall in the penultimate song where he's putting himself on trial as he's having a nervous breakdown. Toys in the attic, simply gone fishing, uh, bars on the window. You know, he's using all the euphemisms for having gone crazy. Could you sing the whole song for us right now? Crazy, (laughs) simply gone mental. Um, And then there's a lot of like the judge is like yelling at him in a non-singing the evidence before the court, blah, 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 blah. It's a great album. If you haven't listened to Pink Floyd's The Wall, don't be a Billie Eilish not knowing about music of the past. I like Billie Eilish, by the way. I'm just... Yeah, but, you know, we 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 keep things real. We we uh, we acknowledge, you know, people's foibles, even the ones we like. Um, but I, I, of course, know of Pink Floyd's The Wall. I've never listened to it in full. Is it kind of like a concept type album or you know one where there's Mm -hmm. like a running theme okay so it is i love concept albums i haven't listened to like a whole plethora of them but i just i love the concept of concept albums let me be the first to say that um i I know what a concept write a concept album about the concept of a concept album yeah now we're getting really deep um but yeah now that just makes me want to really dive into it so i think i may have to do that at some point Speaking of things that we talk about before we talk about the things we talk about on this show, Jose, do you have anything you'd like to talk about at the top of the show? Uh, So for our conversation starter today, I was perusing my list of potential topics, and I decided to go with one that I think will be pretty succinct. Um, Let me ask you, Mr. Eric, are you at all familiar with the short story... The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. Of course I am. It was parodied on The Simpsons, wasn't it? 
<laughs> so that's how you know it's the mark of true high literature if it got a parody on the simpsons uh at what was that your first that you can recall was that your first exposure to the story or was it the actual story itself and uh when when did you come across it finally i just kind of knew about it as um a generic trope you know like a it's kind of another way of saying be careful what you wish for like this is a real monkey's paw situation i think it probably just you know what we might have read it in school actually now uh, that i think of it yeah i know a lot of literature textbooks have um you know, especially when you get into the secondary level of school, middle school, high school. And I know this because I loved my literature textbooks, and I actually kept mine from eighth grade, I think. It's it's uh, on my shelf at work, actually. Um, so I know how they <laughs> how they work, which is a cool thing to say uh, to win friends and influence people. Um, there was always usually a unit or a section, I guess you would say, on suspense, or th there was always a section that kind of dealt with um, not necessarily scary stories, but ones that... Ooh, some eerie creaking going on on my end. It's the monkey himself. It's the monkey himself. Guest appearance. Say hello, folks. He uh, is one hand short, but I think we can... I'll understand the reasons for that. Um, but yeah, like, uh, I think the one that I took from eighth grade, like that section had um, the Hitchhiker radio play by Lucille Fletcher that was adapted into the Twilight Zone episode. Uh, speaking of which, I think that same book in that same section has the teleplay, uh, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street from Rod Serling. Uh, so that was always the section that I would make a beeline for <laughs> anytime I got a literature textbook. Um, but my first exposure to this story, my, my first real expo exposure, I should say, outside of like uh, pop culture references and the like, I specifically remember there was a time when I was driving around with uh, my step grandfather and we were cr just cruising around he took me out for the day to uh haunt some used bookstores and scare up some you know copies to add to our home libraries and took me out to lunch and during the drive he recounted to me in like the best oral storytelling fashion he recounted the whole story of the monkey's paw and i know that this was um prior to me reading the story because I remember just sitting there in the car listening to him and it was one of those things where parts of it did feel familiar to me like I think I know how this story goes but hearing him fill in the details and and telling it in his inimitable way it just lit my imagination up um and made it seem like this this grand thing that I wanted to I wanted to find immediately and I don't know how much longer after that it was that I finally read the story but I know upon my initial exposure to the story itself I it probably just registered with me as like oh you know that's a fun uh shuddery ghost story that you know is clearly the grandfather of so many other um similar stories that have come in the decades since but um the thing 
that I probably love most about it that has really come to me in subsequent readings is for all of its, um, this may sound strange, but it actually kind of reminds me of a Christmas story in this way. Um, at least my That's experience. Strange. It is strange, isn't it? Um, or at least my experience with a Christmas story, the movie, is that people remember its most quotable moments and they think of it, I think, as something different than what I feel it really is with the Christmas story. I think the popular conception is that it's, you know, kind of a bit of a zany comedy, you know, it's still grounded in family, but you know, Oh, it's just this kind of wacky little holiday movie that gets played 24 seven around Christmas and Oh look, he's in a bunny suit and Oh look, it's the leg lamp. You know, isn't this movie such a lark, but I've, I've seen it a lot. Um, and the thing that strikes me more and more as I watch it is it is actually such a tender movie. Um, like when, when you watch it repeatedly, you start to see that it's, <laughs> it's about this family that is barely making ends meet and they're just doing their best to make it through the holidays and make each other happy. Um, like I, I, I cry, I tear up at several parts in that movie, um, just because I find them so touching. And in a similar way, the monkey's paw, paw has really registered that way for me when I read it again and again, because the parts that stick out the most for me, as opposed to when I was younger, a boy reading this story, I of course fixate on like that final third of the story where, you know, the the old woman has wished her son back, and oh, there's somebody trudging down the path towards the house, and oh, it's him, it's my boy returned, and the old man's trying to tell her, don't you understand, you know, the condition that he would be coming back in, he's not our son anymore, but she's just too delirious with, you know, joy uh, to to see otherwise, and while this creature is trudging towards the house and ominously knocking on the door. He's struggling to search in the dark for the monkey's paw so he can make the final wish, and he does it just in the nick of time. It's such a cinematic segment for such an older story. Um, it's kind of remarkable in that way. But in any case, you know, that's that's the part you fixate on as, as a kid, like, oh boy, you know, how, how fun that was. Um... But when I reread that story, it's so heartbreaking to me. Um, just the the nub of family tragedy that that's at the heart of it. That that's the part that I feel the most, and the part mm -hmm. you know, the kind of details you would gloss over as a kid, like when. The uh, I, f I forget who he is, you know, the insurance guy or, you know, a representative from the factory where the son works to come break this news uh, to the parents, you know, that their son has been killed in an accident. You kind of gloss over that part like, oh, yeah, that's just the necessary information we need to move the story along. But when I reread it, I, you know, it just cuts me right in half. And whereas you're kind of caught up in the 
the dramatic mechanics at the end of the story with, oh boy, is he going to make it on time? I, 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 the image that sticks with me at the story's end when, she, you know, the door is open and it's just an empty, you know, just in, uh, however they, uh, Jacob's words it, it's just, you know, the lone little street lamp lighting on an empty path. I just think of that mother sitting in the doorway and crying and that's what sticks with me the most these days with that story and i'm curious if any of those reactions um to either of those uh, pieces of media have uh, have been the same for you in any way oh <clears throat> the other piece of media being a, a christmas story yes yeah it's funny because i did just rewatch that for the first time in probably like 15 years it was on tv for christmas and i was like you know, because both TBS and TNT do their 24 hours of a Christmas story. So I was like, oh, I should maybe give this a rewatch because, you know, I was sick of it for a while after watching it so much as a kid. Understandable. And uh, it does hold up really well. Um, but the thing that the thing that is sort of a recent revelation to me, I think because I'm just I don't like have a family, but I'm. Well, I have parents and stuff. Uh, <laughs> and I think this will tie into the uh, book that we're about to talk about, too. Oh, man. The way that horror intertwines um, scary things, be they supernatural or real-world terrors and anxieties, with the domestic life, the family life, is something that I don't think I came to appreciate really until I saw Hereditary, mm. which um is like as much of a domestic drama as it is a horror movie but that was the first movie that ever really made me feel like like the way that people talk about horror of the 60s and 70s like rosemary's baby is talking about you know that was a time when they were kind of stripping away a lot of the gothic trappings of horror like the big haunted castle or the mansion on a hill these kind of unrelatable um, but uh, sort of grandiose icons and then moving things into the suburbs or an apartment complex in the city. Uh, that's the feeling that Hereditary gave me because it was the kind of movie where like a lot of people were complaining that it was too long, kind of boring. And it like it was, but also I don't think that it would have hit me the same way if it was shorter and more expedient. Um, so we think about how if you have that realistic emotional foundation and then you set about like devastating it with your horror element, it does make it that much stronger and get under your skin that much more. Yeah, very much so. And the thing about um, the monkey's paw, which, you know, if you're only familiar with it through its adaptations and parodies, um, the thing about the original story, unless I'm forgetting some key detail, but I don't think I am, is that it is still up for debate at the story's end whether anything supernatural occurred at all. Um, because the way it's framed, this pause introduced by the colonel or the sergeant major, the major general, whatever he is, um, you know, this dinner guest that the family, the whites, 
uh, have over, and he's the one, you know, he's been abroad, um, in, you know, the best imperialist sense, uh, and came across this talisman from an Indian faker, uh, or fakir, I think is the real pronunciation. Yeah, that probably rate. sounds more right. Yeah, fakir, right? I always, I, I any time I came across it as a kid, and uh, you know, with a story, I thought, oh, faker. Well, that's not, that's just kind of laying it right out there, you know, that this is an untrustworthy person that I met on the street. Um, it's amazing that they would call themselves by that. <laughs> really, really helpful for tourists. Um, but anyway, you know, he acquired the paw through them, and according to the you know, this character, he saw the bad luck befall anyone who used it, including himself. So that's our framing. That's, you know, our evidence, so to speak, before, um, you know, the paw falls into the hands of the whites. And then everything that occurs after that is questionable. You know, the old man makes his first wish for the large amount of money, and he says that the paw rides in his hand as if it were alive. Uh, and then, you know, following that, the son has his accident at the factory and they acquire the large amount of money, uh, in the form of his insurance, um, his workers comp basically. And from there, the old woman makes her wish to have her son come back. They hear the noises. They presumably, I can't quite remember if they do see somebody out um, in the road coming towards the house, uh, but then they make the third wish and then nobody's there, um, which I guess you could say, you know, is evidence that, all right, well, yeah, I guess something supernatural must have been occurring if after making the wish, whatever it is at the door, human apparition or otherwise, just disappears but there's just an ill-timed sting dong ditch yeah right yeah but that's the thing um <laughs> Our is that it could go either way bag of poop <laughs> worst wish all the wishes are being turned against us first he dies and then he's a bag of flaming poop <laughs> this is the worst the worst trinket we've picked up at the Universal Studios gift shop. I swear, I'm never going there again. Well, also worth pointing out is that uh, the, I think it might be the third Are You Afraid of the Dark episode. Is, yes. Twisted I don't claw. think they credit, yeah, I don't think they credit the monkey's paw because it was probably public domain even by then. Yeah. Um, but that was because, is it DJ McHale who was mm -hmm. the guy in charge of that show okay mm -hmm. there's also dj caruso who's a different person <laughs> um and hey dj tanner full house fans i'm not forgetting oh. about you uh but he said that when they first started are you afraid of the dark they were trying to adapt a lot of classic literature so that if parents started uh complaining about it they would be able to be like well we can point you to every short story we're adapting i mean do you not want your kids to read um, yeah. But then he said, uh, we eventually dropped that concept because nobody ever protested. Yeah, good for them. Boy, I wonder if that would still fly in today's world. Well, we've spent 15 minutes talking about the monkey's paw. Would you like to uh, wrap it up like a, like a fakir would wrap it up in a... Careful. Some kind of... Um... <laughs> Careful. We don't want to be canceled on our, was, on our sixth episode. Of... 
Uh, well, I was just trying to think of what they wrap stuff in when you go to a gift shop. Oh, okay. Like, uh, I, I guess just like paper. I thought you were gonna. Paper. I thought you were gonna go like the turban route. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, no, we already covered all that on Curse of the Mummies too. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, the fez. All right. Inventing fezes for Middle Easterners. <laughs> so, Eric, you said that my uh, apparently wonderful, a uh, random choice of the monkey's paw kind of and familial drama kind of ties in with the book the book you picked out for us today so i'm really excited to know where we're going for today's episode well golly jose i'll (laughs) tell you um okay i can't send the file i think i'm gonna try and do the screen share okay while eric retrieves the image the idea is that i actually have no idea what book has been selected so i'm now going to see via screen share what we're looking at today and it is ooh, i've always wanted to read this one i'm glad you beat me to it because i probably wasn't gonna get to it anytime soon we have the dollhouse murders by betty wren wright which you already knew because you're listening to the episode and the title's right there but this is a pleasant surprise for me are you familiar with the work of uh, Ms. Renwright, because she has um, quite a few of these kinds of books. So familiar in the sense of I know of her, I've seen the covers, I've heard the titles. This is probably her most um, famous one, I would guess, since I've seen a crop up in a number of like BuzzFeed lists and uh, things like that. Betty Renwright and um, Mary Downing Hahn, the other three named uh, mm. author of ghostly fiction from roughly the same era. So Mary Downing Hahn being Wait Till Helen Comes and uh, all the rest. But yeah, The Dollhouse Murders. This, the plot to this one always sounded intriguing and, you know, vaguely um, not appropriate for. <laughs> <laughs> middle grade readers um so yeah. I'm, I'm very c- curious to hear how it actually pans out well there are actually murders in this book it's not just a clever title wow now there's something you wouldn't see in a goosebumps book which i promise we're not gonna always be referring to goosebumps but just so oh, you know yes, we, we may will. always be referring to goosebumps yeah i mean i don't it, think that's yeah we can't make any kind of promise on that it's like Jonah trying to hide from God. You can't you can't hide from him, not even inside the whale. Sorry. Is that why he went in the whale? He was hiding? No, well, he... I thought I, I thought he just got eaten. Yeah, I think he was just trying to hide him. I'm, I'm referring back to... I'm mining uh, my knowledge of the Bible from all the Bible coloring books that I had as a kid. I had a brief Bible phase mm. when I was a kid. Um, of your own accord or like foisted upon you? Um, no, not quite forced it upon me. I had a family member who, you know, uh, took it a bit seriously. So it was just kind of in the air around me. Um, but it was not necessarily pressed upon me. It, I think it came about when, uh, I, I was talking to Eric earlier about sleepovers I would have at my grandparents' house and my aunt, um, who lived with them at the time, um, you know, she was the one who, was a little bit into religion at the time um still is now but in a much better place with it uh one of the video store nights that we had was uh we rented the ten command the ten commandments 
and uh, I just kind of fell in love with the movie. I thought it was great drama. And uh, from there, I'm like, oh, what other cool stories does this book have in it? You know, I already heard the one about Moses. So as a result of that, I, you know, had a brief kick where I was doing Bible coloring uh, books. And, you know, uh, my memory of the one of Jonah was that he, he, he was a, he was a sinful man who tried to hide from God and like God was represented as the sun and you see him like crouching behind some barrels on a ship, I think. And then it just so happened that, you know, during that trip, he got (laughs) eaten by a whale. Uh, And then he was like, Hey God, I'm sorry. I tried to run from you. Can you get me the hell out of here? And God's like, okay. And uh, yeah, that's my memory of that story. Was it a son with a smiley face? No, it oh, was it was like a realistic portrait. I know, right? Yeah, with two uh, shovelfuls of raisins. Um, no, unfortunately not. Well, uh, okay. Anyway, let's see if I can get back <laughs> yeah. into the book from that digression. I mean, talk about <laughs> you're, horror, you're welcome. Right? Sure is a lot of gruesome stuff in the Bible, and also the Dollhouse Murders by Betty Wren, right? Mm. I guess you already know what era this came out in because you said it was the same time as Mary Downing Han, but or Han, but I always said Han as a kid. I was going to ask you, based on this cover, what era you think this was from because it's a little bit tricky. I'm pretty sure this is uh, like two or three covers into the reprint cycle. So I was going to try and trick you into saying, like, I don't know, 91 or something. Ah, I see. I know it's older. Um... I want to say 82. Yep. You're almost right on the money. It's 83. Ooh. And the tagline is, the dolls didn't forget. I don't appreciate that. I I don't think that dolls should be able to. No, they, 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 no, I'm, I'm not okay with that. Like the concept of them understanding things enough to remember, you would say is not favorable. Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, not cool. And this is also part of the Apple Chillers series, which is like a little apple. The logo is a little apple that's made up to look like a jack-o'-lantern. And um, I don't yeah, remember I these. Like, I guess it's sort of like the point horror of like children's books. Is that a thing, a concept you're familiar with? So I know of Apple. Um, I'm, But Apple Chillers, that... That's no, I think that's a new one for me. I didn't know that they kind of had their own little mini line. Um, that let me sa- see if I can sound- find some other titles in this line. It sounds Most like a menu. Most of them are from Betty Wright. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say it sounds like a menu item. Get your apple chillers here, apple chillers. I know. Well, it sounds like exactly what I want on uh, Halloween, right? Right. Yeah. Betty Wright. Uh. <laughs> Other titles include Ghost in the Noonday Sun by Sid Fleischman, The mm. Girl in the Window by Wilma Yao, The Magnificent Mummy Maker by Elvira Woodruff, <laughs> Scared Stiff and also Scared to Death, both by Jana and Malcolm. Wow. I've never heard of any of those. Nope. <laughs> I think when I was a kid, I think I was a little bit more sensitive to, you know, this came out 10 years ago and therefore is ancient and will make me like feel musty and bad so i think i probably skipped over these kinds of books so 
like you just open it up to the first page and it's like, oh my God, I can feel the wrinkles in my face already. I need to abandon this immediately. Yeah, it just made me, I guess it maybe reminded me of my own mortality. Like <laughs> there was a time when I did not exist on this planet and there will come a time again when I no longer exist on this planet. And I don't want to think about that right now. So sorry, apple chillers. It is quite a curveball. I'm going to so, go read something where the main kid is on a skateboard. So tell us, we, we got, so um, the cover here that we have featured, uh, you said this was probably about maybe the third reprinting, and now this is the Apple Chillers version. So we have a young preteen girl uh, in what I assume is an oversized t-shirt, as was the wand back then. Uh, oversized t-shirt, blue jeans, sensible haircut. And she's kind of peeking around the corner of a large-ish dollhouse, um, presumably in the attic. Speaking of, you know, toys in the attic. And uh, it's uh, it's a dollhouse, not one based on the cover that appears to open up like the modern ones do, post-Barbie. Uh, but it's got just like an Open, think of like an open face sandwich. This is an open face dollhouse where you can just look right into the rooms. There's no fourth wall, so to speak. And we're peering into an upstairs bedroom. And there are two dolls. Just looking closer. One of, I guess you could say, the dad. And one of uh, a younger girl. Younger than our hero here. Look, I can't quite see it on the screen, Eric, and you have the book there. Is the girl holding something, the, the, the doll, I mean? No, she's not holding anything. She's just like the old man doll. They're both reaching out imploringly um, with yeah. purple halos surrounding them of a perhaps supernatural origin. Mm. Yeah, see, my I, I don't know if I was going to be able to handle it if it turned out that the little girl doll was holding a, a little doll in her arms there. Whoa. I think that would have been too much for me, and I would have had to have stopped this episode immediately. It would have freaked you out if the doll was holding an even smaller doll? Yeah, that's too much. That's an interesting phobia. Um, <laughs> I have lots of them. So, Oh, do you want to give us a list? No, <laughs> we've already <laughs> taken the half hour to, before talking about the book, so let's save that for another episode. Okay, I'll read the back. <laughs> yeah. Quotes. In quotes is what I mean to say. It's waiting. It was mm -hmm. just an old dollhouse, hidden away in the attic, collecting dust. Amy didn't know that the dollhouse, dollhouse held a secret, a deadly secret that hadn't been talked about in years and now the dolls have decided that amy should be the one to know the truth the truth about the night of the murder so um i do want to say there are a number of variant covers that i was able to find online uh oh yeah i can just kind of scroll through them right mm. now and you can look at them that oh, really beautiful. take you through the eras of um children's book cover design no and, kidding. Uh, I'm going to post them all on our Instagram. I'll have the the one that I, the edition that I have will be the first one, and then the others will take you through. One of them, which I'm presuming is the oldest, looks like it's straight out of the '70s. Really? 
Oh, and then this new edition has a forward by R.L. Stein. Look at that. Can't escape him. Ooh, yeah, look at that. So, yeah, I found five different covers. So I guess that means this has remained a popular book over the years. Apparently so. Yeah, that last one you you had there, that was the uh, oldest one you said? I'm assuming. I didn't really double check. Yeah, well, it looks like it, just based on the font. It's, you know, speaking of Rosemary Baby, Rosemary's Baby, it's, it seems uh, kind of of that era with the the rounded font and uh mm -hmm. yeah it was it was a, it was a small image but i loved it because the girl's like half hidden in shadows and looking kind of ghostly herself and <laughs> the dollhouse is not nearly as menacing as it is in some of the other ones yeah it has a very old-timey um nancy drew look to it Yes. I don't know. Okay, this this will be my last tangent before we get into the book proper. Go ahead. But <laughs> horror and and horror adjacent movies from the 60s specifically, but I think they were still using it in the 70s. I love it. And I can't tell you how much and I, I guess I would say that the connection here is if this was uh, a horror film from the 60s. I could very much hear the dollhouse murders being set to on the musical soundtrack a harpsichord. I love it when a harpsichord pops up in horror movie soundtracks and it's usually of around this time. I actually can't recall if Rosemary's Baby has one but it just conjures a very dusty uh, spectral feeling for me that I think complements, um, you know, ghost stories very well, but also like the uh, the the uh, hag horror movies of the sixties and seventies. There's just something about it that kind of reeks of, you know, dead bodies in the fruit cellar, and I love it. So Dollhouse Murders. If anybody ever adapts that movie, you. Better sure as hell put a harpsichord in there. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I just watched the uh, Wednesday series on Netflix. I'm trying to remember if they mm. use any harpsichord on the sound on the score for that. And I don't remember. I think I was distracted by the show not being very good. Sorry, Gen Z. Um, that gets in the way sometimes. It's a bitch. And this is the type of book where every chapter has its own title. So I kind of want to read through oh, those boy. because some of them would be like, it would be a fun writing exercise to do like a random, like take a title from one of these books for the chapter and then make a short story out of it or something. Uh, so I will yeah, go through all that. 19 chapter titles to give you kind of an overview of how this book might go. Mm. Chapter one, okay. she can't help the way she is. Uh, a Spike Lee joint. I'm sure. <laughs> I was just going to say. Chapter or... two. <laughs> <laughs> chapter two, the most perfect dollhouse. Mm -hmm. Chapter three. So we all have problems. <laughs> chapter four. We love you very much. You know, that one might be my favorite. That sounds like a good, like sinister grandparent movie. <laughs> yeah. Right. The visit part two. We love you very much. You know, <laughs> Chapter 5, Dolls Can't Move By Themselves. Chapter 6, A Visit You'll Remember. Chapter 7, 
they were murdered <laughs> chapter eight i don't believe in ghosts that's a goosebumps title if i ever heard one mm. chapter nine i've never been so scared in my life chapter 10 when she leaves where will i run chapter 11 i saw a light in the dollhouse <laughs> chapter 12 i came to the party Chapter 13, Something Little Will Turn Out to Be Big. <laughs> wow. Chapter 14, <laughs> Chapter 14, The Poor Dolly is Crying. Chapter 15, A Ghostly Secret. Chapter 16, It Could Have Been Just Anyone. Hmm. Chapter 17, Someone's Walking on the Dollhouse Stairs. <laughs> Chapter 18, more ghosts, Amy. <laughs> Chapter 19, like a real family. Wow. What a journey that was. Some of them sounded like, yeah, <laughs> some know. of them sounded like they could have been pop song titles. Others could have been titles of uh, a memoir. Uh, I caught one like that. Um, others were. I, I can't say oddly specific, but just very specific to the story that was being told, which, you know, I guess if it's the name of a chapter in the book, it has every right to. But someone is walking on the dollhouse stairs. It's like, yeah, good luck trying to ext extricate that from the dollhouse murders and working it into something different, I guess. Was I came to the party the one that you thought sounded like a memoir? No, um, it was like chapter oh. three, I think, where. Uh, <laughs> so we all yes, have <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we all have, or you know, maybe that's a TED talk. So we all have problems. Thanks for coming, everyone. Yeah, that's like a self help guru whose whole thing is like, I'm not gonna be sympathetic for you at all. Yeah. <laughs> and they called it tough love. Mm hmm. All right, so let's get into this book proper. So, Jose, we open up at that staple of suburban childhood, the mall. Naturally. We have our main character, Amy, who is 12. She's at the mall with her new friend, Ellen. Well, not only is Ellen a new friend, Ellen is new to Claiborne in particular. Amy really wants to impress her, but unfortunately... She's saddled with her little sister, Luann, oh, how... who is a year younger than him. I mean, her. <laughs> I was going to say, how old is Luann? But a year younger. I mean, that's that's seven years. You know, when you're a kid, years work the same way as dog years. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> I keep getting saddled with these books where <laughs> I have to describe things that were written in a particular terminology from a particular era. And like on the cold people episode, when I had to talk about how there was an unhoused person named Bum. <laughs> That's right. So what so do we have episode, here? <laughs> well, I'm so excited to tell you. Um, Luann is a year younger, two inches taller, 12, uh, 20 pounds heavier. And mm. uh, I had to look up the term on the Special Olympics website oh my God. because I didn't want to misspeak or use an outdated terminology. She is, in today's parlance, mentally disabled. Uh, not a term that appears in this book. <laughs> Good to know. 
<laughs> so that's why uh, Amy did not want her along because Luann tends to mm, she doesn't exactly facilitate Amy's friendships when she's mm-hmm. around. I'll say that. Uh, at the mall, she keeps getting into trouble every time Amy's not looking because she's trying to pay attention to Ellen. At one point, she goes off and starts talking to a puppet show, and everybody in the mall is laughing at her. And then later on, she goes into a florist shop and knocks over all his tulips, and he yells at them. And then when Mom comes to pick them up, um, Luann tells her about the florist, the mean florist man, and... Uh, Amy gets reamed out for not watching her sister closely enough. So, needless to say, as a 12-year-old, Amy bolts out of the car as soon as they get home and bikes off into the woods. Any feelings so far? Um, Terrifying. Yeah. Right? Scared out of my mind. I guess I would say that I'm cautiously interested in and in how this particular relationship develops in the story <laughs> and and how and how it's used i guess i would say yep families huh so speaking of family let's mm-hmm. go visit aunt claire amy's father's sister um she's the kind of aunt who lives in that spooky old house Way up the long gravel driveway. Is that where Amy takes her bike? Yep. That's where we arrive in our story. Aunt Claire is cleaning out her attic when Amy arrives. And Amy's wandering around. She pulls a sheet off of an item that has a sheet over it. And behold, do you want to guess what's under that sheet, Jose? One doily. That's right. They made sure to cover up the doily with a dust sheet. The doily house murders. <laughs> no, you silly fool. It's a dollhouse. It's not just any dollhouse. But it's a perfect replica of the house that Aunt Claire is currently living in. Oh, there it is. Yep. Down to every last stick of furniture. There's even some candles. Although I think Aunt Claire says something like, oh yeah, we don't have those candles anymore, but we used to. What happened to the candles, Claire? Uh, they got used, perhaps? Oh, okay. Carry on. Mystery solved. Yeah, her grandparents made this for Claire's 15th birthday. And, you know, again, speaking of hereditary, there's more mm. more hereditary vibes. Um, so Aunt Claire's parents yeah. both died um, a little bit after she got the dollhouse. Wait, no, sorry. Aunt Claire's parents. I was mixing up her parents and grandparents. Aunt Aunt Claire's parents both died on a trip to, I think there's some offhand reference to, like, they went to South America and caught a virus and died. So she moved in with her grandparents, and she brought her little brother with her, who would be Amy's father. So she's back in town because she was living in Chicago for a while. Uh, but she lost her job, and she says, Amy, your dad's been asking me if I could move in here and clean this place up for many years now because it's just been standing vacant. Nobody else is doing it. So since I lost my job, I decided to just move back here for a couple of months and get on with that. 
So that's her backstory. Or is it? Will there be more? Is there something she's hiding? Mm. <gasps> and Claire. If that's her real name. Yeah. Whose name? Ant, really? <laughs> Except for the comedian, I guess. So, Amy relates all of her troubles to Aunt Claire, um, including her oppressive home life. And Aunt Claire's like, well, why don't you uh, come live here mm. for a while to get a little bit of a vacation from that? And so Amy calls up her mom. Mom says Aunt Claire is a, quote, changeable person. And I don't know what that means, but I think it's supposed to be an insult or a slight. Uh, but she gives anyway. Yeah. A I changeable think so. person. Yeah, like a flake, like a flake. I guess. Uh, so Luann is upset, mm -hmm. but Amy's mom gives in reluctantly. I think her dad puts in a good word for her. Um, and then who should call but Ellen? Or maybe Amy calls Ellen, because I don't know. I didn't take very good notes. Uh, uh, the listeners are disappointed. Either way. Look, the point is, Amy invites Ellen to come up to Aunt Claire's house. Well, I'm still not going to be able to sleep tonight. Wondering who called who. So I need to get my hands on this book if I want. Well, look, I may have an answer for you. I think what happened is that I that Amy goes back home to gather up her stuff. And I did not make a note of that. Because... We get this fun Steinian parental detail. Mom mm. reads cookbooks when she's upset. Just like Dad and his guidebooks, Mom and her cookbooks. Which seems simplistic, to put it one way. Yeah, you think she should be reading something more um, complex? No, I just... Value? No, <laughs> I just... I, I just mean in the sense of, oh, you know, what is dad preoccupying himself with? Oh, he's trying to find his way around. And what does mom read in her spare time? Oh, how to make things in the kitchen. It's like, Robert, <laughs> Betty, do better. Well, look, you know, some women are born to be trad wives. <laughs> and it's not, it's not my prescription that they should. It's just it's a subculture that exists out there. I don't know what to tell you. Who are we to argue otherwise? <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I watched a YouTube video recently about like the movement of conservative women who are like trying to give up the voting right for women. <laughs> you know, anti-suffragettes. So there's a lot of stuff out there, Jose. <laughs> it's a great big wide old world. It is. All different kinds, different strokes, different folks. Well, what about, speaking of uh, anti-suffragists, what's going on with Anne Claire? <laughs> oh, uh, you know what? I don't think Anne Claire would be anti. I think she would have been out on the streets marching for those rights. You know what mm, I mean? Yeah. She's I, a I changeable so. woman. Yeah, she may... I think <laughs> means flaky, but also there's some amount of, like, independence. There's, like, a, I think there's a subtext that, Amy's mom might be a little bit distrustful of Aunt Claire because, like, she never got married mm, and never had oh, kids. Yeah, always, always a source of fishiness. Boy, I'll say. In stories and in life. 
Like, why haven't that per- why hasn't that person burdened themselves for the rest of their life? What's wrong with them? There must be there. There's something wrong with them. Yeah, child free by choice, more like a crazy loony lady. Yeah, cha- a changeable lady. I was trying to be exactly as clever as the character I was inhabiting would be. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> uh, so Ellen comes over. They go back to uh, Aunt Claire's house. And Amy finds some dolls in a little box that mm. look like, hey, her grandparents and her dad and Aunt Claire as children. Um, and then Amy surprises, nope, sorry, Aunt Claire surprises them with fudge. Uh, and she makes it very clear, you know, that when you want to tell people a harsh truth, you give them fudge. Aunt Claire says, I don't want to talk about that dollhouse. So Amy runs back up to the attic because she wants to close it up before Aunt Claire goes up there and sees it and gets upset. But what should she see when she goes back up to the attic? But, hey, I'm pretty sure I left all the dolls in the kitchen. So why is Grandma Doll standing in the parlor? How bizarre. Mm. <laughs> Is that the riff for How Bizarre? How Bizarre? Ooh, baby. Ooh, baby. I guess These so. Dolls are freaking crazy. They're making me crazy. Every time I look around, every time I look around, they're somewhere else. All right, the exclusive debut of Strange Jose, Song Paradise. <laughs> Black Magic Treehouse, the album. Coming nowhere. <laughs> we are really diversifying our output here. Yeah, got to start early. <laughs> Establishing so a chapter... list. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Just, just go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> uh, chapter six, Raccoons Raid the Garbage. What? You didn't say that was the name of the chapter? Or is that what happens? Uh, well, I could tell you what the name of the actual chapter is. It's a visit you'll remember. Oh, the way you said it, I thought the name of chapter six was raccoons raid the garbage. <laughs> that would be a great. It's chapter just that that's all that happens in there. Oh, okay. Well, moving on then. <laughs> I wrote it down because I was like, "Is this going to pay off later?" It doesn't really. There's just a couple points where we need like a jump scare, where it's like, "Oh no, something rattling around outside." Oh, it oh. was just a raccoon. Now, Ms. Wright is not as liberal in her use of those kinds of jump scares as our dear old friend Bob L. Stein is, is she? No, I mean, I would say some of these chapters don't even really end on a cliffhanger. Yeah, I feel like that was... Now, I, I hesitate to say that Mr. Stein was the first to do that, but he was certainly the one to popularize it uh, to the point of being dumb. Um, (laughs) So uh, I think for the most part, though, uh, whether it was, you know, spooky stories written for, well, I guess spooky. I I think for the most part in the land of spooky stories written for kids, it was not general practice to do that unless they were books that were basically meant to be ripoffs of Goosebumps. Um, 
So, and this being pre Goosebumps, I, I, it doesn't surprise me that that's not the case. But I am so glad to hear that she doesn't resort to cheap tactics like that to draw in her readers. Instead, she, uh, she, she brings out the fudge. She brings out that literary fudge. What would R.L. Stein be in culinary terms? R.L. Stein in culinary terms would probably be milk duds. I mean, I don't really like, but I mean, like, it looks like chocolate on the outside, and then you bite into it, and you're like, oh, there's like nothing there. Milk duds that have been in somebody's pocket for a while. Yeah, I think we, I think we got it. Nailed it. So after the raccoons raid the garbage, what happens? Well, let's hear a little bit more about Aunt Claire. She says, my life is terrible. I never really wanted to choose work over family, but I had no choice when my grandparents died. And Hmm. Amy says, well, how did they die, Aunt Claire? And Aunt Claire clams up, which leads to one of my favorite tropes in horror media. Let's go to the library and search through microfiche. And I wonder, and I, I think we've had this conversation before, is this still a thing? And this is uh, slightly shameful for me to admit having the question because I worked in a public library for seven years um, and I don't know if we, I, I don't think neither of the branches that I worked in had microfiche. I'm sure it's a big country and, you know, there are public libraries, small and large, uh, so somebody must still have microfiche, but I wonder how common it is. Because, yeah, that used to be all the rage back in the day. Uh, you know, even in movies, it's like, well, we need to find out, you know, what what's this strange crime that nobody in town will talk about? Let's scroll through some microfiche. Well, they're still doing it in movies. They did it in Last Night in Soho, which came out, what, like two, three years ago? Oh, okay. So, and I know in that movie, there's trips to the past that are taken, but the microfiche stuff happens present day, I presume? Yes. Oh, well, look at that. So, we answered our own question. Thank you, Edgar Wright, for your public service. So, what does she find, our Amy and her friend Ellen, as they search through the archives? Well, they're looking through the newspapers of 1952, and it doesn't take long to get to the relevant front page headline her grandparents were murdered pray tell how were they murdered um i don't think we know yet oh okay but what it doesn't say in the newspaper uh oh they were shot sorry oh oh yeah no i i don't mean like who killed them i'm like <laughs> that would be a great news story. Uh, elderly couple murdered. Uh, we don't know how. That's it. Um, Go home. And Aunt Claire, when she was, I think she was 18 at this time, came home and found their bodies. And her little brother, who was five at the time, was hiding in the closet. Not unlike mm. a certain hip hop opera by our friend R. Kelly. Mr. R. L. Kelly. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> I don't want to think about what kind of books that guy writes. <laughs> so there were, okay, there were no 
suspects in the murder. To this day, it remains mm-hmm. a mystery who killed grandfather and grandmother Trelower, I think is their last name. And Trelower. Oh, also, that's a great name. in an unrelated article, they find out that Aunt Claire's boyfriend died that same night after colliding head on with a tree, probably while drunk. Hmm. I wonder how these two things may be connected. Could they be, you think? Raising some eyebrows over here. Just one and a half for now. So there's a little bit of a, I'll skim a little bit here because the book, it's 150 pages long, uh, which is, you know, like 30, 40 pages longer than your typical Goosebumps book. Mm -hmm. And it falls into a bit of a pattern where Aunt Claire will like either hear uh, Amy talking about the murder or she'll go up and see that the dolls had been moved and Amy insists that she didn't do it and she'll get mad and then they'll reconcile and we'll piece out, parse out a little bit more of Aunt Claire's backstory. So in this particular instance, what they find after Aunt Claire's gets upset is that she feels guilty because she was fighting with her parents on the night that they died and she ran off to go to a movie with her friends rather than stay home and talk things out. But the the cause of the fight was that she was dating an older man who was often drunk and they didn't like him. Old drunk men, traditionally hard to get along with. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he's like an old man. He's just <laughs> yeah. older than yeah. her. <laughs> yeah, I understand. He <laughs> <laughs> wasn't like a geriatric with <laughs> suspenders. Uh, I'm thinking of like Pappy from Pappy's Playhouse. I love him, mother. No, <laughs> he's a drunk and all he does is draw little cartoon figures all day and talks to furniture. He's not right for you, Claire. I was more into uh, Imagination Station myself as my learn how to draw show of choice. I'm not familiar with that. I think I know where my YouTube destination will be for tonight. Uh, An important thing to tell you is that Amy's birthday is coming up. She is 12 going on 13. So she goes home to collect some of more of her things to bring for preparing for the party. Because she wants to have this at Aunt Claire's house to avoid having Luann there. Um, and one of the things that she picks up is a t-shirt that reads, I love pizza and pizza loves me. If I saw that at uh, Kohl's tomorrow <laughs> in neon lettering, I would buy it. It's funny how we have, you know, kind of distorted ideas of about the past and what they did do and what they didn't do. But that... It's like something that could appear whole cloth, no pun intended, today and fit perfectly in with the the general Gen Z mindset. Um, but I can't help but wonder, are we just kind of discrediting, you know, the early 80s? Did they have silly t- t-shirts just as much as we do? You know, I, I can't help but wonder. I was talking about this with a coworker the other day because we were talking about like, inappropriate stuff you wore as a kid that you didn't realize was inappropriate and when i was in kindergarten i used to have a shirt which was made for children of uh, spuds mckenzie the um mascot for budweiser beer see you said that and i thought oh uh that's the beer guy from the simpsons but then i just remembered that that stuff man uh yeah spuds mckenzie was a dog 
Yeah, they brought him back a few years ago for a Super Bowl commercial. He was like okay. a I don't know what the breed is, but like the the um the little rascals kind of dog with the spot over the eye. Oh, okay. Um he was that and he encouraged yeah. people to drink and party by the pool. So <laughs> Cut to uh, Spuds McKenzie as the same dog from Homeward Bound getting whipped in the face by a porcupine. It's like, these are the dangers of excessive drinking. Like, that's the Spuds McKenzie PSA. That's the same dog, right? That's the same kind of dog. Yes, but I will, uh, just to clarify, he was not a PSA against drinking. He was pro-drinking. Well, I understand, but... Are you saying he had to put in some penance, like public service, or like a community service for <laughs> if he was if he was running a political ca- campaign somebody would definitely use footage of a totally different dog that looked like him getting spiked in the face by a porcupine to talk about the dangers of excessive drinking this commercial was paid for by the uh Airbud foundation <laughs> you know i we're getting off topic here but that's okay that's what we do um really do you think i always thought that it would be funny to have, you know how they have those uh, totally saccharine posters that are like, everything I need to know, I learned in kindergarten. And it's like written mm. on like lined paper and like messy handwriting that looks like it was done like with finger paint or whatever. Mm-hmm. I always thought it would be funny to have a poster that says everything I need to know in life I learned from Airbud, And then number 20 would say, there's no rule that says dogs can't play basketball. And then number one through 19 would all be blank, like to show that the person (laughs) couldn't really think of anything else that they learned from (laughs) Airbud. That is the most uh, salient point of that whole movie. And that, um, you know, not every clown is capable of raising a dog. Oh, that's right. I forgot he was. Ugh, gross. (laughs) In case you were thinking of revisiting that movie, I just given you a reason to stay away from it. Don't be clowns. No, thank you. Yeah. She okay. So yeah, she says, uh, "Sorry, Luann, you're not invited." Bye, and she runs out and gets on her bicycle. Um, <sighs> her vision blurs with tears because she feels guilty. Uh, mm, back at Aunt blurred. Claire's. So anyway, she goes up to the attic to get a blanket for Ellen, who's going to be spending the night soon. And what should appear in the dollhouse but an eerie illumination and something is moving inside it. Something tiny on two legs. I don't think that's a mouse. It's not mouse on the motorcycle. That's a different book. Mouse on the motorcycle. Was it, it was a toy motorcycle that magically worked. Was that the deal? I don't remember. (laughs) I remember watching, I guess it was a short film. Cause I feel like we only spent one day on it, but, there was some kind of cinematic adaptation of the mouse on the motorcycle that we watched in elementary school. I presume it was because it was a mouse on a motorcycle. I just remember the moment where he pulled up to like a gas station and he's like, Oh, I've been riding for a while. could really use something to cool me down. And I feel like this was just after recess. So I was like, you know, sitting on the carpet, watching this on like the projector and the gas station attendant comes out and gives him a little mini bottle of Coca-Cola. And and this thing was like a taxidermied mouse on a toy motorcycle. And, you know, you, you, like no animation whatsoever. 
so he gets the bottle and he's like hey thanks and i just remember watching that and i'm like oh god i could really go for a coke right now <laughs> it was handy that the gas station attendant had an appropriately sized coca-cola i know for well you know he just served a, a squirrel on a skateboard a, a couple minutes earlier so he was like you know what i feel like this is something i should stock up on that's funny i like the idea of the visual of like some crummy kids media with just like a poorly done taxidermied mouse that just like his eyeballs are falling out <laughs> like yeah. his mouth is hanging open you see the sawdust pouring out of his gut and just, whipping in the wind as he rides his motorcycle just this grotesque little abomination like hi kids Aren't I whimsical? <laughs> oh, God. Uh. Speaking of small things like a miniature motorcycle, miniature people called dolls. Are they drinking bottles of Coke? You know what? I think all they have is like miniature plates and stuff. Like they probably have mugs of <laughs> that they could maybe use for miniature tea time. Uh, parties mm, but instead they're just filled with our tears over our unsolved death and this death is so unsolved that the dolls feel compelled to keep reenacting it because every time amy goes up to the attic they're all in the positions that they were when aunt claire found them dead so prior to the dolls reenactment of the murder every time they do it does a little miniature robert stack walk out in a little trench coat and explains that you two could solve a dollhouse mystery. Yeah, it's pretty adorable. Because I do have to tell you about Amy's birthday party. Oh, there's a birthday party, yes. She gets home from school. Yeah, I. you'll remember that I planted the seed that she was turning 13. That's right. She's a woman now. And what do you do? Oh, well. <laughs> Sorry. In certain contexts, I don't know if I would endorse that statement. Um, <laughs> Most of them. Uh, so she gets home from school one day, and guess who is there waiting? It's Luann, you guessed. Mm. Her parents had to go visit a family friend who's having surgery, and they couldn't find anywhere to put Luann, so I'm afraid she's just going to have to be here for Amy's birthday party, leading Amy to be nervous. That she's going to become embarrassed. I'm honestly a little bit nervous myself for yeah. <laughs> how the treatment of the character is going to go from here. Let me alleviate that suspense. Whew. The party goes swimmingly. Is it a pool party? Nope. Ah, oh, damn it. It's metaphorically they all pool their kindness together towards Luann. I'm hitting the stop button on the record right now. No, wait. <laughs> so, yeah, they everything goes okay. Her friends are pretty understanding. Uh, Aunt Claire is there to help supervise. Um, sometimes Luann, you know, maybe has a bit of a tendency to make things all about her. So Aunt Claire has to sort of remind her sometimes, like, hey, this isn't your party. This is Amy's. So don't hog all the attention. Mm. And things go all right. Phew. Well, that's a relief. So now that we're past that section of the book, this is the chapter that's called 
Hold on, let me look. The poor Dolly is crying because yeah. that night uh, Amy wakes up and Luann is not in their bedroom. So she goes to look for her to make sure she's not getting into trouble. And she's up in the attic looking at the dollhouse. The grandmother doll is once again in the parlor. And this time she's holding her hand out towards the bookcase. And just as Amy crouches down to start looking at what Luann is looking at, tiny books start falling off the shelves. There's a little tiny V.C. Andrews. There's a little tiny uh, Sidney Sheldon. Okay, at first I was thinking a little tiny young Sheldon, the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> yes, well, that's that's what I meant to say. That's I'm sure when they do the updated version to make this more accessible to kids, they're like, hmm, how do we ref- work in a reference to uh, two and a half men? <laughs> yes, that's what they'll be doing to update it. <laughs> yeah, nobody needs a cell phone or anything. No. Um, honestly, nobody does need a cell phone. Don't update your books with cell phones. Nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares to read an extra paragraph where it's like, oops, I'm out of battery. I forgot to charge it. Uh, and anyway, Luann says that the dolls are crying. All of them or just a little girl? I think it's all of them. I mean... that That is unsettling. Being murdered is worthy of crying over. And uh, having your pa- grandparents murdered is also worth crying over. Mm, I guess. Um, and then, so in the morning, they tell Aunt Claire about this. And Aunt Claire says, I'd rather believe you're lying, because if you're not, then what I've always suspected must be true. <laughs> so are you going to help me or not? <laughs> well, look. She needs to cool down first, Jose. But then she'll invite Amy inside to bake cookies with her so they can talk about this. Busting out the fudge again. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of her solution to all these problems. It's a good thing she's not diabetic. (laughs) Well, you know, that's down the line. Uh, So (laughs) what is Aunt Claire's terrible secret? She thinks her fiancé is the one to murder her grandparents. Pappy? He was... (laughs) Pappy, yep. Fresh from the boat to uh, Pappy Land. Son of a bitch. He was hot-headed and often drunk. And Claire's parents disapproved of him. We know that already. Um, But what we didn't know is that uh, he told Claire that he was intending to have it out with her parents once and for all. And that was the same night that Claire (sighs) came home to find them dead. And he died in a car accident, driving home recklessly and inebriated. Well, you know, that's what happens when you kill people. Famously. Are you ready for the solution to this mystery, Jose? Yes. One more final trip to the attic with Amy and Luann. It's a dark and stormy night. In between peals of thunder, Mm. they once again hear the tiny sounds of sobbing. And then another sound, a more sinister sound. Footsteps coming down the dollhouse stairs the parlor door bursts open <sighs> Amy and Luann run screaming down to Aunt Claire who takes them into the kitchen and shoves cookies at them you again this is the sort of thing that like the reader probably picked up on it before the book actually gets around to it when the book started falling off the shelves but it turns out those very same books might be the key to this whole mystery 
So they go into the parlor and start knocking book off the sh- knocking books off the shelves like Grandma was doing, Grandma Doll. And what should fall out from one of them but a letter, apparently written by Grandmother Trelower in her final moments. A letter naming the killer. Jose, are you ready for this revelation? I know what's going to happen, but I dare not speak it aloud. You're going to have to. You think you know who the killer was? Was it... Claire? No. Oh. Damn. I thought I was onto something. It was... It was... Reuben. Oh. Of course. Who the hell is Reuben? (laughs) Now look, it's not that I forgot to set up Reuben. Betty Wren Wright forgot to set up Reuben. Uh huh. So. But we learn now that uh, he was a handyman, <sighs> who used to do work for them. Why did he kill them? We don't know. Unknown. <laughs> Not worth mentioning. Doesn't really matter. We're just gonna let those dolls keep crying up there. It is funny though. I mean, I think Wright kind of realized like, oh wait, I forgot to set this guy up. Should I go back and do it? No, I'll just have Amy see the name Reuben and go who. Much like the reader themselves. So Aunt Claire, needless to say, is relieved that her parents' deaths were not her fault. They were their fault for hiring this guy. (laughs) Hey, you you hire from Craigslist, you pay the price. You take the risk. Guilt is always best to alleviate by just uh, shifting it onto somebody else. Do you want to... Okay, I'm going to tell you, there's not a twist, really, but there is a a freeze-frame-worthy moment in this book. Oh, boy. Of, you know, everybody laughing until the credits roll. Um, Amy is picking up the books, and she notes the title of the book that the note fell out of. (laughs) It's a play by Ibsen called A Doll's House. (laughs) That's basically what I wrote in my notes. Whackity schmackity doo. (laughs) Ibsen would be so proud. Yeah, it, that is what happens in A Doll's House, right? It is about murderous dolls. Yep, famously so. Uh, and then we get an epilogue. Amy's parents come back. Um, Aunt Claire unloads the demonic dollhouse on them because she's like, here, uh, I think Luann would like this. <laughs> wow, nice. And um, Amy has some, you know, some kind of a resolution about feeling like well, I guess Luann is my sister and we're a family. The end. So I'm going to give her the haunted dollhouse. <laughs> yeah, right. I did read a funny review on Goodreads where the person was, um, a woman was talking about how when she was a kid, she read this book and looked at her own dollhouse suspiciously and then moved <laughs> it over by her sister's bed so that she would get murdered first, which I thought was pretty funny. Which is uh, interesting. And I could see somebody drawing that conclusion from the book like oh god this was a book about freaky dolls in a haunted dollhouse and it scared me and they're gonna come out and kill me but yet there's no bearing for that feeling in the actual narrative at all but it makes total sense for somebody just to kind of draw that association from it like oh this book is about these crazy killer dolls no in fact it's almost the complete opposite 
The book is about the total burden of responsibility that is often unduly placed on children. You sound like you just whipped that out of a Wikipedia entry or something. You should you should put that in this book's Wikipedia entries. Actually, what I'm saying, just make a little section that says moral or theme and type that exact same sentence in there. And let's see how long it stays there. Well, I did when I was writing my Goodreads review, I was I, I had a chance to uh, organize my thoughts about it. Oh, OK, so this was just your audition. My audition to be on this podcast. Did I get it? Uh, we'll we'll call you. I know that the previous co-host uh, died under mysterious circumstances. It was the handyman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the handyman. This is from back in the day when I think you would just hire like drifters or whatever, and they would like sleep in your barn. Hang on though, because I unless I blacked out or had a mini stroke, I don't believe I recall you specifying if in the book they say like, oh, the murder has been solved. Now the dolls have finally stopped crying. Is there any indication that they're not going to do the creepy stuff all over again, even though the murder has been solved? They're like, oh, we don't care about that. We're just, we're just tormented souls. Um, I think they just put the dolls in the box and they're like, you know, stay there. <laughs> hey, that, that weird thing you do, stop it. Don't do it anymore, okay? You go in the box, and if I bring you out and play with you, I swear to God, if I see so much as a shuddering gasp or a misty eye, your asses are going right back in the shoebox. Yeah, well, it might be that um, Grandma wasn't even trying to get that particular book on the shelf. Maybe she was just trying to get her uh, her E.L. James Fifty Shades of Grey on. Right. <laughs> She's like, oh, God damn it, it's so high up. Who's fucking idea was this <laughs> yeah it's uh not really that scary of a book um but it is very mature thematically i think and yeah. it's something that i you know i'm not going to get into specifics but i will say as you get older and you uh interact with more other adults you start to talk about all the various ways that like boy I never thought about this when I was a kid, but there were some things that really should not have been put on me that were put on me. <laughs> it strikes me very much as a a rainy day mystery as opposed to like an out and out, you know, goose pimply ghost story, I would you say. You try to avoid saying goose bumpy? Uh, no, I was actually avoiding trying to say shuddery ghost story because i used that word when i was talking about the monkey's paw earlier but that just kind of worked against me because i ended up just referring to goosebumps in a in, in a related way yet again so damn you rl stein you got me again man he's got all of us in the palm of his hand stein's world we're just living in it <laughs> i just imagined uh a revamped version of bobby's world except it's a little rl stein pedaling his tricycle around the house just as like 43 year old rl stein though it this <laughs> but the size of bobby balding head thick glasses and all just the size of a five-year-old boy dead eyes yep dead dead eyes he can't help it that's just he's he's got he's got he's got resting dead face he can't help it 
He's really yeah. quite a funny person. But anyway, um, he is, yes, um, listen to him on the Crybabies podcast. It's very funny. Really? Oh, I'm gonna have to look that up. Um, so what would you say your overall feelings on the book were? Is it one that you're happy that you went back and read, so to speak? Uh, would you recommend it to anyone else? It does feel, it feels the way that I remember other scary books that I would try to read outside of Goosebumps feeling, which is like, Mm. why isn't there more stuff happening? (laughs) Why is this trying to teach me something about life? (laughs) But I'm sure for kids who had a more troubled childhood, that was probably a helpful thing to be able to work through in through the lens of a, of a, um, of a genre book. You know what I mean? No, I definitely know what you mean. Cause I was that kind of kid um, I feel like we talked about this maybe in our first episode with Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, where, you know, as much as tearing through all the Goosebumps books uh, really built me up as a reader, um, also know that it just kind of, they kind of ruined me <laughs> uh, for a long time, because if I came across a book that was not written almost at exactly the same kind of breakneck everything happens but nothing really matters pace as a goosebumps book i just you know i I turned it away it was basically like i was eating hamburgers 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 but even if somebody presented me with a steak like hey this is basically the same thing Mm -hmm. that you're eating but it's a you know it's a little bit different you know the taste is a little more complex have at it, I would have been just like, you know, gross, take it away. Um, so I know exactly the feeling that, that you're referring to. Absolutely. I think I'm able to appreciate it more as an adult than uh, mm-hmm. I probably would right. as a kid. Yeah. So I'll say, what is it? Um, bargain bin or time capsule. Uh, you could throw this one in the bargain bin. <laughs> yeah, I saw it on your lips. I saw it on your lips, and in spite of everything you said about appreciating it more, um, I could tell that just as uh, basically a, a piece of entertainment, it didn't quite seem to to do it for you, regardless of its uh, aspirations. It's, yeah, it's right on the borderline, honestly. Yeah, that does it for me. Uh, I don't think I have that one in my collection yet but uh now i'll know if i do come across it i will have had the benefit of your beautiful summary from this episode to to just act in its stead steed stead yeah i mean it's been reprinted so many times it must have a lot of people who do love it uh are you one of those people email us (laughs) black magic treehouse pod at gmail.com that is, is that right? right yeah let us know if you read the dollhouse murders as a kid or if you like eric uh decided to try it on as an adult what was your reaction any different uh do you have fond memories of this one uh have you read any of betty run wright's other books uh that maybe you can point us in the direction of and then of course if you have any other memories of other books whether those are clear memories or fuzzy ones that maybe you need somebody's help identifying, definitely reach out to us at the email address, blackmagictreehousepod at gmail.com. 
And that's actually the same name as our Instagram page, Black Magic Treehouse Pod. And I don't think we mentioned it at the top of the show. We've kind of alluded to it in previous episodes. But uh, while our little show here was kind of built upon the idea of resurrecting all these books of children's horror and discussing them, we are opening up our purview to discuss all pop culture and uh, media artifacts that fall within the remit of children's horror. So not just books. We're also going to be talking about movies, TV shows, uh, toys perhaps even. Uh, We're really open to just about anything. Anything that kindles those twin flavors of nostalgia and morbidity and gruesomeness. Uh, We're going to be training our sights on that kind of stuff in episodes, which I'm really looking forward to, and I hope you are too, Eric. I sure am. Hey, Jose, how many dolls does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. How many? Zero. They don't need to because the eerie illumination coming from within is supernatural. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Uh, It's been great. It's been great. (laughs) Oh, boy. See you next time. Wrap it up. Say goodbye, Jose. Goodbye, Jose. We'll see you next time up here in the treehouse. Thank you.